1: Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Chandar Patabiram, CMO of Coupa. Chandar has more than 25 years of experience in strategic marketing and management consulting, including his previous role as CMO at Marketo. As CMO of Coupa, he is responsible for driving all aspects of worldwide marketing, including strategic segment marketing, product marketing, growth marketing, and corporate marketing. On this episode, Chandar breaks the mold on Demand Gen, explaining why you should actually be thinking of it as Revenue Gen, and illustrates his flywheel approach to marketing that goes beyond the traditional funnel model. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview
0: between Chandar Patabiram, CMO of Koopa, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. And today we have an amazing guest by Buddy Chandar.
2: How are you? Ian, doing great. Thank you for the amazing word. The check's in the mail. But uh, seriously, uh, given where, what's happening to us in the world, relatively, I'm doing great.
0: Yeah, this is going to be a fun one. You and I have done a bunch of episodes together, but we've never really needled in on general You're always one of my favorite guests. You throw high heat the whole episode. So our listeners need to uh, strap in and get ready here. What was your first job in gen?
2: I think my first exposure to how to do demand gen in a programmatic way was sometime around 2006, 2007. You know, I was running product and channel marketing for a company called Cast Iron, which was the first appliance company in the cloud space. Uh, And we ended up being bought by IBM in 2010, the first cloud computing company they bought. It's interesting that we were one of the first five customers of Eloqua at that time. So that's really when the concept of, you know I didn't know what nurturing meant and what having drip campaigns and all those things meant at that time from a digital marketing perspective. But that was my first exposure to it, being one of the early customers of Eloqua and really trying to instill a discipline in how do we go after the early and the mid phases of engagement for prospects and then ultimately drive it into more targeted pipeline for the sales organization. And that's where my first exposure to it was And then over the years, I understood, you know, what are the metrics that drive it? How do you have a tightly coupled funnel between sales and marketing and harness the skill set? And I think what, you know, the icing on the cake was going and being CMO at Marketo. It really, we sold that for a living and seeing that for across, you know, thousands and thousands of marketers and looking at that across our customer base and how the great ones do it and learning from that was really a terrific experience for me that I brought to Cooper to expand on.
0: So Flash forward to today, you're the CMO of Coupa. Uh, for the listeners who don't know, who aren't like Caspian and have all of our procurement needs handled by Coupa,
2: tell us about Coupa and your role as CMO. Coupa is simply put, what Salesforce.com is to sales is what Coupa is to spend. If you look at any company, there's two sides of the house. There is the sales side of the house and then there is the spend side of the house. And just like Salesforce is a platform for all things CRM, Coupa is a platform for all things BSM, business spend management. And the simple way to look at it is that there's been silos of different aspects of spend in the past. It's procurement, invoicing, expense management, strategic sourcing, treasury management, payments, contingent workforce management, etc. And what we're doing, just like CRM bought all these different pillars or these different legs to the stool together in one, one platform... We're doing the same thing in a comprehensive way on the spend side in the business spend management platform. And today we manage about almost $2 trillion of spend for companies across the world, uh, whether it's from iconic brands, whether it's Nike or Amazon or Procter & Gamble to the Golden State Warriors to you know some of the great nonprofit organizations, whether it's the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, American Cancer Society, World Vision, et cetera. So a spectrum of customers across big and small across companies that are doing great as well as companies that are doing good for society.
0: Yeah, and so you mentioned the types of companies that you're working with and the different sizes, and obviously we're gonna dive into what it means to create demand gen and marketing for those types of sized organizations and how that's different here in a bit. But what does that persona look like? Who manages business
2: spend at these companies? Yeah, it's a good thing, and you asked me, the question behind the question is interesting because in marketing, there's no such thing as markets. It's a nebulous word, right? What are markets? You can't put tangible. It's really personas. Ultimately, they're buyers, and you have to figure out who the buyers are. And there's a combination of buyers for us for different aspects of our portfolio. Like any company that is scaling is, for us, the core persona, the champion, as we like to call it, for our core P2P products is the procurement persona. Somebody, the chief procurement officer, or somebody responsible for procurement in our organization. But we also have other products that we sell. For example, we sell sourcing where there is a sourcing executive responsible. We, we just re- acquired a company for treasury and we have payments that's you know more on the finance persona that, that's responsible for that. So it's really trying to discern the three or four personas that we're going after and being very programmatic about it, both in our larger segments as well as in our different mid-market segments.
0: Let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the
1: circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with, in the nest, are we not?
0: This is where we can go to feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. So Chandar, what is your approach? How does demand gen fit within your organization? What's your funnel approach? How do you look at this? Are you lead-based or account-based?
2: Like, how do you see all of this? Yeah, I think there's two words you use that I don't use. One is funnel, and two is demand gen. And I think that's the traditional way of looking at this. The way we look at this is, first of all, we call it our old team, our whole team. We call it revenue marketing because why do any marketing unless it's for revenue? But specifically, the traditional demand gen team, from a mindset perspective, we approach it as growth marketing. We are a fast-growing organization. And we look at it as how do we go be responsible for driving that 30% plus growth that in public markets that that we demonstrate. And the second aspect of growth marketing is to not look at it as a funnel activity, but look at it as a flywheel activity. And we can double click on that later. But historically, people have looked at demand gen as a function that is typically getting into a funnel of getting from leads into helping convert that into opportunities that goes into ultimately sales pipeline and and close. But we look at it as growth marketing across the areas of how do we go drive the right amount of pipeline for sales, but also how do we very thoughtfully expand into our install base and go drive that flywheel, which ultimately drives more acquisition for, for companies. So that's the, the mental model in which we approach this.
0: Yeah, and for our listeners, you know, when Chandart and I hopped on our prep call for this, he's like, I think the name of your podcast is wrong. It should be Revenue Visionaries. But I think that that's exactly what this show is, and this change in this movement of the old way of thinking of, you know, demand gen scrapes a bunch of leads and dumps them into a bucket, right? Like that just doesn't make sense anymore. And arguably probably never made sense in the first place. In your organization, if you call it growth marketing or whatever you call it, it it speaks more to like, What is the thing that's driving revenue and how do these people buy? How do modern buyers buy? What do those committees look like? And so I'm curious, you know, you have mid-market, you have enterprise, you have different personas within the suite of products that you have. How do you look at driving that type of, you know, the awareness, the engagement and convincing people to buy?
2: I think ultimately there's a lot of complexity in terms of matrices of buyers and personas and markets and all this stuff. But if you simplify it at the end of the day your job in marketing is to find the fastest path to the most dollar for the sales organization right i mean that's the guiding principle at the end of the day what sales really cares about is are you finding me the fastest path to the most dollars so if you take that statement and thin slice it i think it first starts with having a playbook that's unique for each of the segments and you can define segments in two ways you can define it in terms of market sizes that companies typically do whether it's large enterprise for example, we have an enterprise segment, you know, which is going after larger companies. And then there's a mid-market segment, and then there's a corporate sales segment. Again, that is based on company size. That's traditionally in B2B marketing, what you've seen. There's also segments based on different industries. If companies are going after a very industry, IBM, for example, is going in a very different way in terms of industries. But if you just take the former and just keep it in company size as kind of the vector of differentiation of these different segments, then what you have to think about is, first of all, how do I find the fastest paths to the most dollars in each of these segments? And that means creating a unique playbook from a growth marketing perspective for each of those segments. And to create that unique playbook, we start with this concept of ideal customer profile that is unique for each of those segments. So what is the ideal customer profile for us to go after in an enterprise segment? What is it for a mid-market segment? And then what is it for a corporate sales segment? You can do the back of the napkin using a few variables, whether it's hey, you know, industries where you're successful, the competitive win rates in those industries, where you find your product market fit, or you can get a little bit more sophisticated to get some predictive analytic tools. We have used one of those in the last three years to create our ideal customer profiles in our enterprise mid-market and our corporate sales segments. And once you start with that, then ultimately what that translates into a set of target accounts, and a set of certain industries and a set of certain regions where you want to focus on. And we start with that as kind of the first place to go and say, is we're going to design plays to go after this ICP. So that's the starting point. I don't want to give a long, long answer, but I think that's a starting point for that. Uh, yeah.
0: Well, yeah, and we're going to get into the plays here in, in a second. So you mentioned the flywheel versus the funnel. And I think that this is something that's a pretty big paradigm shift and I think how especially non-marketers see marketing. I think like all of them now are at the point where they see marketing as the funnel or sales as the funnel. And like, we know that the top is marketing and eventually that hands off to sales and then sales has it. And that's the old way of thinking. Whereas if you were to go to your CEO or your board and say, no, we have a flywheel approach. They might be familiar with Jim Collins flywheel, right? Yeah, Yeah, Yeah.
2: Flywheel, yeah, yeah.
0: They might be familiar with that, but maybe not how it relates to marketing. So like, what's this flywheel? Yeah, so let's kind of
2: double click on that, right? So, first of all, marketing in the traditional funnel sense has been a sequential problem, which is, hey, I go do a set of activities early, in the middle of the funnel, translate it into sales in the later part of the funnel, and then they take over, right? So, to me, it's not a sequential game as much as a simultaneous game right now, which is sales could be engaging prospects late in the funnel, and you could still be coloring the sky scoop of blue, as I like to call it like what are the set of activities that we're doing, especially if you have longer sales cycles in certain segments, that there's no reason for you not to be engaging them, even if they are in stage two, stage three, of your sales pipeline, right? So that is one shift in terms of don't make it sequential problem, make it a simultaneous thing, unless they get to very, very late stage where you you don't want to spend those marketing dollars, it's probably more effective not spending it there, very late stage. But before that, I think you can still continue that mindset of, my job is to color the skies, Cooper blue, as I like to say, as they go through the journey very late to the process. So that's one aspect of it. The second aspect of it is don't stop there because if you look at traditional B2B spend, 80 to 85% of spend, and there has been studies from Deloitte and others that has been on acquisition marketing. And the boat's pretty imbalanced, right? Because a lot of times you're evaluated based on, hey, how much sales pipeline did you get? The CEO says, have you done that? So you invariably measure your spend that way. The funnel approach basically says that balance the boat a little bit more and spend more and get dedicated program dollars and people dollars to expansion marketing that helps you do do cross-sell from a, from a growth marketing perspective than just the traditional stuff around acquisition marketing. So those are aspects that we have consciously invested in, in our market experience, for example, what we're doing at Coupa. And then, of course, there's advocacy marketing and stuff that completes the funnel. So if you look at the simple way to look at the funnel, there is awareness, acquisition, expansion, and advocacy. And that's how we look at marketing from a flywheel perspective.
0: The ways in which that you organize your team to focus on those, do you look at it as I'm going to align marketing resources on the different sections of the flywheel or is it by the different account teams? How do you look at that?
2: It's the part of and, not the tyranny of or in what you just said. Because let's go back to first principles of B2B marketing, right? B2B marketing success is primarily depending on Sales success and sales and marketing alignment. So in my first principles of organizational design for growth marketing, the first thing for us I do do is I want to align a growth marketing leader to a sales segment leader, because at the end of the day, when a sales segment leader wakes up and says, I want to make my particular segment successful, you want a growth marketing leader waking up in the morning and thinking about the same thing. So, for example, what does it tangibly mean? We have an enterprise segment, we have a mid-market segment, and we have a corporate sales segment, or let's just say we have an EMEA segment. and So there is a sales leader assigned to that, and we would align a growth marketing leader aligned to each of those particular segments. Now, in addition to that, there is, in organizations, there is a leader for cross-sell, and it all depends on how that is being defined in a matrix organization. And if that is the one, I would align a growth marketing leader for the cross-sell business too, in such a way that you're thoughtfully aligning it to the flywheel here where cross sell is, is a unique thing that somebody's responsible from a pipeline perspective as much as your acquisition marketing. So that's the way first principles of aligning it to how your sales leadership is designed.
0: I love that. And I think that a lot of times you have, you know, organizations, especially large organizations, that can't figure out how to not jump on each other's toes. <laughs> right. And you so you have people that or say, especially when you have like this cross sell opportunity, opportunities, like hey, lay off this account, you know, don't, don't do this. And then what that creates is a marketer who has no idea that any of that sort of stuff is going on, who's slamming that same persona, like over and over and over again yeah. with these cross sell things. And it's like, we deliberately did not want to push cross sells into this like persona right now, because they're dealing with X, Y, and Z. So like,
2: why do they keep seeing ads for that, for example, or events or whatever? Well, it's a great point. And typically in that, if you really want to be a little bit more surgical about it and, and double click on that, some of the challenges that companies don't do, and, and again, I'm not saying you're utopia here, but just generally of what I've observed in my experiences and looking across different marketers is you have to be very thoughtful on when is the right time to cross sell certain products in the customer journey. So if somebody has gone live in the first six months of any software product, and they haven't completely adopted the features and functions of, the, of what you've sold them, it's not very thoughtful for you to go and sell additional features or market additional features in a one-to-many way before you're ensured adoption and success and value-based success of your initial products. So that's why a, a step that's missing in growth marketing organizations is adoption marketing, right? Because adoption marketing is about ensuring that your customers are successful with what they have bought before you go into expanding your presence into these customers so in the last two companies i've been at whether it's cooper or marketo cmos there is we well, have invested in adoption marketing as in people dollars and program dollars to do that successfully before we get into expansion marketing so that to me is very very key and being thoughtful there and a lot of companies don't do that yeah i
0: totally agree i mean you see the uh the onboarding email with the link of like, hey, tell a friend. It's like, dude, I haven't even opened the platform yet. Why would I tell a
2: friend? Seriously, and to me in that, and what is adoption marketing sounds like some fancy MBA word, but really it is, imagine you're marketing to your customers in a one-to-many way, just like your CVMs or customer value managers or customer success managers or your implementation folks are going into your customers and saying, hey, these features, do you know you have all these capabilities? Imagine doing that in a one-to-many way when you're hitting all your install base who have purchased a particular capability and says, this is how you can practically use it. And that kind of adoption, educational marketing about the features and functions that they've bought before you start showcasing, hey, here's all the other products you can buy, right? So I think there's some thoughtfulness that needs to be applied to it uh, today. Yeah,
0: for sure. I talk about it as post sales marketing. I like adoption marketing better, though. But uh, we talk about this all the time about the 80%, like exactly like you said, that's the pre sale. And then it's just like, okay, figure it out. Yes. You have the rise of customer success and like that as a function, which helps them do that. But marketing has to be part
2: of that. Yeah. So the difference there, just to make that point, and being passionate about it, customer success can handle it in a one to one and a one to few way marketing can augment that in a one-to-many way. So that's why it's the part of and, again, that if you can provide the air cover for this, it's going to make that job in the one-to-one and the one-to-few that much more easier for that customer success professional. And that's why the chief customer officer and the chief marketing officer can be great wingmen in this process to go make that happen.
0: What are things that you think are
2: the best practices there to do adoption marketing? Well, I think the first best practice is to assign somebody to do it. (laughs) So I think it starts with that. A lot of companies don't and then put some program dollars against it. But it's also very important to partner with your chief customer officer and his or her team to really understand the journey and says, what are the set of capabilities we wanna showcase for adoption? What capabilities do we have challenges in adoption? So for example, if you're selling a set portfolio of capabilities, some might get naturally more adoption, some might be more difficult to find or difficult to, to, to get adoption. So identify that And then do a more programmatic effort to showcase those. And did you know that this is how these capabilities can be powerful to you and the value that you can deliver? When having close synergies with your implementation and your customer success teams along with your marketing team to create that nurture stream of adoption marketing campaigns for you to do, right? And I think that's in the first six months of a journey of a customer. you got to be very thoughtful there, right? Because by the time you get to year three and you're doing adoption marketing and it comes to renewal time, invariably that customer is going to come back and said, I don't need that capability, right? And you're going to get some, at least you may not get churned, but you're going to get decreased dollar value because they didn't see value in that capability that they bought to begin with. So it's really important for you to hit that in the first one year. And then based on that, map out your expansion strategy and what specific products can I go market at specific times in that journey based on that, right?
0: So in that scenario, you have that VP of sales who owns cross-sells or maybe they own a product or maybe they own cross-sells in general, but they're looking at marketing and going, Hey, Chandart, we, or looking at the VP that you have over that and going, Hey, they just bought, they're in the first four months. It's the perfect time to say like, Hey, you just bought this. Things are going pretty good. Why don't we shove another proposal your way so that you can get this product as well. And like, Hey, we got a number to hit. We got, we have to do this. Like how do you structure that relationship with sales to kind of set the stage and say like hey this is how we're trying to shape this account for the life cycle win not for the quarter win
2: no, it's a good question. You know, did Winston Churchill say this? At the absence of data, my opinion is better than yours. <laughs> yes. uh, or somebody did. So let's. mean, you know, all good quotes. Maybe we should assign to Winston Churchill because he said a lot of them anyway. But I think that's the thing. You have to come back with fact-based perspectives on where is cross sell happening, which products are getting cross sell higher than the others, where is the li- point in the life cycle, for example. We see the average median, either the average or the median. of saying, hey. We tend to cross-sell these products the first nine months after we've got the journey. We are having some challenges. If we cross-sell in the first six months, we are seeing some adoption challenges for those too. And really doing a little bit of analysis because there's a gold mine sitting there. There's a gold mine sitting there. And most companies, especially in the post-pandemic world, where the fastest path to the most dollars potentially is going after the install base for many companies. For sure. So that's why I think you have to be empirical about it and really come back to your head of sales and say, hey, there's a great opportunity, but let's get the alignment or the, the progression of let's get the adoption right. We have seen these products be more successful at this state of the journey and do that. Now, none of this happens till you put a dedicated resources for both adoption and expansion marketing. If you don't do that, then it becomes a sporadic discussion. It sounds cerebral, you put it on a slide, you talk about it, but you don't, it's not going to be actionable. So that's why I keep going back to invest in it for you to make it successful. Then let's get to
0: our next segment, the playbook.
1: This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You
2: play to win the game.
0: This is where you open up that playbook and talk about the plays that help you win. What are some plays or channels or tactics? Give me three that are your uncuttable budget items.
2: It's interesting, in today's world, uh, I think that's kind of changed. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, six months ago, I would have said, it depends on the stage of the funnel, I would have said our physical events tend to be really good for deal acceleration. Not necessarily for awareness building, but in, but like our physical events tend to be really, really good for getting prospects to talk to our best sellers, which are our customers, not our salespeople, <laughs> and having the natural hallway conversations and having the natural interactions and those tend to be great deal acceleration events for us, right? And, so I would have said that is very important for me from a deal acceleration perspective. In today's world, that's changed, right? So the way I would look at it is, um, so first of all, some of the aspects of plays for me is very targeted, what I say, digital, digital targeting for my target accounts and personas in that. Not necessarily less of a shotgun approach, more of a rifle approach. If I say that here are my 450 accounts I wanna go after in my financial services segment, making sure that I have the dollars available to drive awareness, as well as moving them down the funnel with some very educational marketing content is very important for me. And I think that can be a really good asset for us as we do that, right? The second thing is something that we call circles. And what we have done is is something very different. A lot of these people, a lot of marketers today are running these virtual events and claiming victory in engine room metrics or vanity metrics, right? I got ten thousand people to register. I got ten thousand people to register. I got eight thousand people to, you know, download something. But that doesn't really move deals forward as much as build some awareness to some extent. So instead of spending hundred dollars on running a big virtual event for two days for ten thousand people and getting some vanity metrics, what if I spend those hundred dollars in running the one to few circles, like the Google Circle idea, like get eight prospects and four customers into a wine tasting room and virtually, and get them engaged and have those conversations you get out of the way and create those natural hallway conversations that you've had in a more targeted way in a one-to-few manner. So rather than spending $100 on a one-to-many virtual event, I would much rather spend that $100 on these 10 circles that I can go engage. So that's been a shift that's been very important for me in the spirit of deal acceleration, right? So go write a whole, we can talk a whole segment on it. So going back to targeted digital marketing as one, Going back, the second in my playbook is running these circles, the one-to-few circles that is important from that perspective. And then for me, the other piece that helps us is also content syndication, which has been successful for us, and we continue to invest in those areas. With the idea that in the middle of the funnel, you have to earn the right to engage, and educational marketing can be a great asset for you to earn the right to engage and move those forward. And that's the philosophy that we have adopted both at Marketo and here at Coupa.
0: It's so funny that you mention, I love the idea of circles. You and I have talked about it in the past about this idea, like how anti-marketing is it to think about, I mean, that say like, I want to do something that's private, that nobody else knows about, that I'm not going to broadcast to the whole world. That's going to be secretive, that we're not going to pull a transcript out of that. You know, I'm going to do this thing that's very insular, that's very private it
2: reminds you more of sales, right? Like that doesn't seem like- Yeah, it, it, exactly. It doesn't feel one too many. It feels one to few, right? It is one to few. Exactly. And this is where, you know, value is one divided by vanity. <laughs> and so you got to take the vanity metric out of it. And really, I mean, I got to credit my CEO- in terms of thinking those ways and saying, he's not looking for vanity as much as value here and saying, if my goal is deal acceleration, then I should not be worried about my vanity metrics or I should be only worried about my value metrics. And in today's world, in today's world, especially, I mean, there's playbooks for different segments, but there's also playbooks for different times. And in today's time, trying to engage somebody for for even a couple of hours, two, three hours at a stretch in a Zoom fatigue world is highly challenging because you know your competition in a physical you know, think about who's your competition for eyeballs, right? The competition in a physical world, if somebody shows up to a physical event, they have made the investment and they have—they feel like there's an obligation for them to kind of be participate in that physical event there for the two days They come from wherever. Here, your competition is all tap, literally. Your competition is the next screen on the other thing and they can immediately go and, and change it. Your competition is the second event in terms of eyeballs, right? When you say competition, I mean the competition for attention, right? So... To give you a practical example, we just ran an event for thousands and thousands of people yesterday. We had it for 55 minutes consciously. Yep. Because people block an hour in their calendar, and we want to say we're going to start two minutes early, two, two minutes later than nine, and end five minutes early, give them the time. But they can give you that engagement. So these are micro slices of engagement that we want to do in today's world. And that's why these circles matter. And that's why, going back to your original point, it's less sexy to say that I didn't get 10,000 people, but it's more value to say that I had the few that matter, engage with the prospects and move that thing forward.
0: It's just straight up harder to plan that too. Like that's the thing, it's like, it's harder for your marketing team to, this is like the classic adage of, if I had, you know, I think it's Mark Twain, if I had more time, I would have write you a shorter letter, right? Exactly, Mark, it is Mark Twain. It's harder to plan that sort of thing. Totally. And it's harder to make an experience amazing. Yeah. Than to make it something average, than to. Yeah. We always talk about people that are owned by their content calendar rather than like owning their content calendar. Beautifully said. And it's like, you know, we have to publish on this cadence that we came up with because that's what our software told us to do or the best published times or these esoteric things that like, you maybe matter for selling toilet paper, but they sure don't matter for enterprise software.
2: I think people are looking for beacons, not blizzards, right? And here's a challenge, right? So there's a blizzard of content that comes at you. (laughs) Yeah. And it's invariably, there's only so much you can discern and so much that drives value. So ultimately, my challenge to all my team is, I keep saying, take the Forrest Gump approach to marketing and keep it simple. And, And Mark Twain is another good thing. Like the shorter you write and the simpler you write, the more people are going to discern it, right? So very, very true in today's world.
0: Yeah, so I'm curious, you know, you talked about adoption marketing. What are some plays that you run for adoption marketing?
2: Yeah, so you have to look, again, going back to the first principles here, From our perspective, you know, we first of all, you understand the journey. The first thing you have to do is map out the journey for a customer and how much time, if day zero is the go live day, what is day D plus 30? What is D plus 60? What is D plus 180? How do you start engaging that customer in D plus 30, D plus 60, D plus 180? Right. In terms of your marketing campaigns, and what do you do? So that's one journey that you map out. Working closely with your customer success team. And then you figure out, like, okay, what products need to get showcased in that day plus 60, day plus 180. And then you work to create some very compelling three to five minute video content, not some big, hey, let me tell you a one hour presentation on something, right? So we, we kind of give them those snackable bites of these videos and say, okay, hey, did you know, let me explain to you, you know, sourcing in five minutes so that this is how it can add value to your organization right there. And those kind of content and, and, and distribute that across the different touch points. One is your marketing channel. Two is your community platform. So if you have a community forum that you have, start using that as a great channel for you for your engagement. And then also use your sales, your know, CVM, your customer value managers to start socializing these. So that would be tactical implementations of these videos or these snippets that you can start producing and, and so and rolling out across for adoption marketing everything you talk about
0: with marketing and i love this framing is always about speed it's about accelerating pipeline accelerating deal flow accelerate like it's everything is very speed based accelerating like time to value for the customer how can we get them getting more value sooner how can we help them realize value you know those sort of things speed and value being the two operative words there and back to the circles who is going into that little circle like are you putting Four customers and four prospects? Are you putting
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: like when are at different stages so they can talk about that, you know, and then you back up and let them talk
2: and not control the combo? Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, if you take a step back, any circle is a micro-community engagement. And the way you think about it is, it's not that many customers and many prospects, it's a few customers and a few prospects. So that's the definition of a circle, right? It's not one to community, it's one to few. One to communities are a big event that you do, right? So then what is the goal of the circles? Different people have different goals. For me, if my goal was deal acceleration, for example, in the circle. My goal is to take late stage accounts and drive the fastest path to closing and help sales do that by having these natural virtual hallway conversations for that. So to engage that, then I would say, let's go take those late stage accounts and could be by an industry. Let's just say financial services, we have eight accounts in financial services. We want to go get eight prospects who are late stage and then get three customers, really well-reputed brands or well-reputed speakers, engaging speakers from customers create a circle and put some veneer of engagement around that. So, for example, you could take a topic like wine tasting. You could take something like, you know, SpaceX, like people, different personas, like different things, or even a motivation speaker, or just have them come together and have one of your customers present. But keep it very short, you know, 60 to 90 minutes, maybe 90 minutes in terms of, you know, going through that and running that play that way. And so, and do it regionally, whether it's the West Coast, whether it's the East Coast, et cetera, or international. That's the way I would think about it um, in terms of picking a topic, but keeping it two is to one, I would say, between prospects and customers and, and driving it that way.
0: You know, we, uh, in a lot of our shows that we do, we do a two-person podcast episode where we ask the guests, like, hey, do you want to bring one of your pals on or do you want us to source someone who's a peer? Like nine times out of 10, they say, bring me somebody I don't know. And I think that that's like a really good signal yep. to say that, in, especially in a post-COVID world, it's really hard to network now. Like it's really, really hard. And you don't get... To rub elbows with anyone anymore. And you don't get to have smaller, more intimate moments with your peers to talk about stuff of like, what the heck are you buying now? Or what are you, you know, what are you doing for your team? Or are you doing daily standups or, you know, just like all those things. So I think being able to, as a marketing team, facilitating people, meeting their peers that they don't know, especially globally, now that everybody's <laughs> more at home and has a more global mindset, I think that's a really powerful thing my concern is that when you throw sales in the room that you
2: dilute the the brainstorming the magic a little bit you don't you don't you don't need to throw sales in the room and of course you throw a sales executive is very oh he or she is very polished in terms of let gravity take over in terms of natural conversation and don't force anything Uh, but you also don't need to you know Ultimately, you have some facilitator, a very good moderator facilitator, and let that engagement happen. Because like I said, the best sales is already in the room, which is your customers, right? And if you've done a good job of driving value, they're going to do the selling for you and not do it unnaturally. They're going to do it naturally. I have
0: to mention, we've been working together on a series and I did not know a ton about procurement. It just wasn't part of my life. And listening to procurement leaders talk for me was so eye-opening at this this persona Uh, and this group of people that have so much oversight into your whole company, right? They see everything because they see finance, they see how money flows. And so you have this group of spend setters, this really powerful group of people that are the next generation of business spend leaders that are going kind of having this transformation from like, Almost like you know, I don't want to say back office to front office, but that sort of thing, kind of like similar to the way that I happened with IT, where it was like IT went from the back office to like literally a seat at the table because they control digital transformation. It feels like big business spend is kind of in that moment. How do you kind of shape a transformation? I mean, you did this with Marketing
2: Nation with Marketo. Like, how do you think about this? Yeah, there's multiple levels of it. So first of all, shaping transformation has macroeconomic factors as much as what you can do, and today. Is a, I saw this cartoon somewhere that you know who's responsible for digital transformation in an organization: a CEO, b CIO, c COVID. And 100 is of yeah. COVID. I'm sure you've seen that. So I think there's a yeah, c, c uh, yeah. yeah. So I think there's a natural effect for companies that's driving, especially the. I mean, smaller Silicon Valley companies says it's a no-brainer. Of course we do it. But if you look at large, large, large institutions, it's not easy to kind of change the oil tanker very fast, right? Move it, right? <laughs> So I think there's a natural forcing function that's happened. But going back to for us, you know, how do we, I guess there's multiple layers to this, is in a, how do we showcase how our community or our personas are leading that transformation, right? You gotta say that, okay, how is your persona Im- impacting the business? Because ultimately job, if you do it really well, advocacy marketing at the end of the day is not them advocating for you, it's you advocating for them. That's kind of the right? And so if you're doing your job well in, in advocacy marketing, you're showcasing how your persona is driving through transformational change in their organizations. And that's the path we have taken. So like, like showcasing these procurement leaders who don't get a lot of love, you know, the revenue side of the house gets a lot of love. And these guys don't get a lot of exposure level love in organizations. So can we then use this as a platform to make them champions of digital transformation? So we've created this initiative called Spend Setters. It has nothing to do with Coupa. And we try to showcase their life, their success, and how they're driving digital transformation in their organizations. And driving that change, much-needed change in larger organizations. And as a result, showcasing their brand. And that's helped us because invariably when you do that, at some point in time, they will come back and say your product was a key component or catalyst for doing that, right? So it's a mindset shift. No, I was going to say, and
0: working with you on this campaign, that's one of the things that I saw was like, I think that so many people don't realize that their customers historically are not going to sit there and author a piece and sit there and, you know, write a LinkedIn Pulse article because it's too much work. It's too much effort. And what one of the cool things and our listeners can go to spensitters.com and see some of the videos that you all did. But I think that part of the thing on this is that helping your customers find their voice and accelerate that is not an easy thing to do, but it seems like it's such a no-brainer. How can you not be doing that? Totally.
2: Really a great point. You know, Terrell Owens, what did he say? I love me some me. And that's true for all of us in life, right? So if you can showcase kind of, you know, the reputation mechanic of people and really drive reputation mechanic as a great motivator to drive advocacy. The challenge has been that, you know, people have always looked at advocacy I need to get so many case studies and I need to get customer stories and because sales needs it, I need to put it on the website and stuff like that. And I think it's time to have a mental model change because when somebody goes to somebody's website, the baby is always good looking, right? So everybody feels that, yeah, I take it. And then they go to third party sites like G2 crowd or trust the baby is a little bit ugly, you know, but nobody wants to admit the baby is ugly, right? So I think changing that, so that's why I think you still need that. But I think the flip has to happen in organizations where advocacy really is about you advocating for them. And if you do that in a thoughtful way, you will bear more fruit and more benefit in your long-term advocacy initiatives um, than the short term of oh, give me a case study, give me a story, and, and do it from that perspective, right? I, I, I would tell you this is that. So, so I had was the CPO, of one of the large companies, in the world, largest banks in the world, very well-known company, and he told me, "Hey, child we created this setter video, and says, you know, I've heard from from a high school friends. I haven't heard from like 15 years, right? And that's mission accomplished for me. If his personal reputation got that, great. So." I think that's the flip that we all need to do and growth marketing plays an important role in that because you can use that asset to market your community on that person's success and and they can use that same asset to market within their company of what they have done so
0: yeah we get all the time you know hey can we take a photo my husband didn't think that why anyone would be interviewing me seriously but the thing though the, the final insight on that that I'll say is so many of these people have so many things they don't even realize that they just do day to day. That's just like you know, hey, this is par for the course for us. But then when you take those insights and you share them with you know other people, the actual practitioner sharing with their peers, like, wait, you do a morning stand up for fifteen minutes? Like, we don't do that. You know, it's just those little things are really powerful. And I think yeah. figuring out ways to market those, I agree. You have to find. But the the measure can't be just impressions, right? It has to be
2: impact. Yeah, I think you know the engine room metrics of marketing has been you know has been a bane for all of us. And I keep saying it's not the engine, especially for growth marketing. It's that engagement metrics between with sales and other leadership that matter more than any engine room metrics of impressions and clicks and visits and all that stuff, registrants and all that stuff. Right. So
0: our next segment is the dust up. Uh oh, here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust-up involving yours truly
1: and now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place and it is getting really ugly because we've got punches and kicks
0: this is where we talk about healthy tension whether that's with your board your sales team your competitors or anyone else have you had a memorable dust-up
2: sometime in your career yeah i have i mean look many times and as long as it's done with respect and it's done with fact-based perspectives. It's welcome because, as I say, we have an obligation to dissent and it's a McKinsey line, but it's very well established in, and it's very, very applicable in leadership that you have an obligation. group thinking can be your danger to you. And it happens in sales and marketing. So, you know, I have had situations where the sales leadership has said, hey, this is the wrong set of tactics to go do. For example, the previous company I had the sales leadership was very much focused on the SMB business. Hey, let's go after the velocity engine. Let's go to the velocity engine all the time. And so you know, my, my team had come and said, no, let's actually implement an account-based strategy for the mid-market and corporate sales business, which was not done. Typically, it was done for the enterprise business. And sales leadership was like, why would you go focus on that as opposed to driving more money on the inbound engine because we, were, we had a big inbound engine going? And we ended up realizing that our ESPs can be about 40% higher if we end up doing that kind of account-based strategy, even in the mid, you know, lower end of the mid-market approach, if you do it thoughtfully. So that kind of healthy tension and, and bringing a different perspective and hypothesis-based tension in in, in, in that th- system helps. Now, you don't hit 100% batting average on those, but if you're batting you know, anything more than 33%, you're good in terms of those hypotheses and bringing those tensions. So that's a practical example of what happened. Jenner, how do you view your website? Now, I think that we, I view a website as the most strategic weapon in marketing for us, right? And for us, first of all, I take inspiration from Malcolm Gladwell, who told me that, you know, strong verb, short senses, it's a key to communication strategy. And that's no more perfect vehicle than the website for that, is can you get your message in a very succinct way because attention span is so difficult. You don't have them in the first few seconds, you've lost them. So can I do that? But I view the website as a vehicle for conversation. I don't view the website as a vehicle for just one way information dissemination, but can it be a vehicle for conversation to start the conversation and move it forward in a journey? And it's an important asset for us in that way. And it's a top regeneration tool for us. I view that and just not in the acquisition marketing I've talked about, but also in expansion marketing is a strategic weapon for us across the board. Let's
0: get into our quick hits. These are quick questions, quick answers, just like conversational marketing with qualified.com. Qualified prospects are on your website right now. You can talk to them quickly with Qualified.com. Quick and easy, just like these questions. Go to Qualified.com and learn more. Chandar, so what is, after this is all said and done here, hopefully someday with COVID, what's the first restaurant you're going to go eat at? Amber in Santana Row. What about, uh, have you picked up a hobby in uh, during shelter-in-place or a
2: habit? i am gone back to drumming. I bought a Congo drums. And along with karaoke, I'm trying to learn some. I used to be a drummer in high school, more passion than talent, but it's a great opportunity for me to go back and augment that skill set.
0: We broke out the uh, the piano. My fiance plays the piano. Cool. And she's like a killer piano player, but she never plays because we didn't hadn't, didn't have it set up. And so it's
2: pretty amazing. Nice, nice, very cool. If yeah, we can start a band, you can be the drummer. Do let's do a band, right? We can, you you got to bring some uh, classic rock into it. So that's my favorite. So you better she can play some good old uh, Doors and Led Zeppelin, I'm in.
0: Oh yeah, she can play it all. Is there one one piece of advice? I know you've given a ton, but just for CMOS that are trying
2: to like figure out a demand gen strategy for the first time. I would you know say the same thing. Don't view it as demand gen view it as growth marketing because the way you call it and the way you view it gets permeated throughout the organization at your departmental level at the ceo level and at the board level and so i think it's important to say that i'm going to call it growth marketing and i'm going to view it as a full flywheel strategy than a funnel strategy would be my advice
0: Awesome, Chandar. It's just, man, I learn so much from you every time we chat. Every For our listeners, go check out Koopa if you need some business spend help. Any
2: final thoughts? Anything to plug? No, I think, you know, check out if you want to talked about the circle concept and some of these one hour events. that are than these virtual events. We just did one yesterday with Dr. Larry Brilliant, one of the great epidemiologists in this world who inspired us on why the world is going to be better rather than worse. If you want to check it out, go to koopa.com slash smarter. You can listen to his talk.
0: Awesome. Thanks again. Take care. Thanks, Ian. Great to be with you, again. Demand Gen Visionaries
1: is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.